0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and open this morning to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven is where we're going to be this morning. While you're turning there, let me say one quick word to those of you who are married in the house today. Uh, And that is this, that this past week, the the first of September, we have kicked off the third and final challenge in our home front initiative here at Moberly this year, which is the Marriage Conversation Challenge. And uh, I have challenged the married couples in our church to commit, make a commitment to a once a week conversation with your spouse for 12 weeks using a conversation guide that we have provided for you. Those of you who were here last Sunday, uh, you got a copy of that guide. But if you're here and you have not grabbed that yet, then as you leave today uh, in the receptacles there in the lobby, there is a marriage conversation guide. It's got eight questions on it. And that will help you to have a conversation with your spouse about the things that really matter most. You know, one of the keys to a healthy marriage is a relational intimacy, and uh, part of the, how you you build that relational intimacy and you build that friendship is through communication and connecting heart to heart with your spouse about the things that matter most. And this conversation guide is really just a tool to help you to do that uh, once a week for the next twelve weeks. Now, if you would like to have a copy of that conversation guide uh, on your phone, then you can pull out your phone right now. This is the one time in the the service where it's okay to to. Text in church, but you can pull out your phone and uh, text the word talk to 57686. Okay, text the word talk to 57686, and I'm contractually required to memorize that number, 57686. Okay, I can say it in my sleep. Uh, but if you do that, then almost instantaneously you'll get a text, and on your, your phone, you'll have a digital copy of that conversation guide. And then over the course of the next 12 weeks, you'll get a series of uh, encouragements and resources that are sent right to your phone that will help you as you uh, have these conversations with your your spouse. I hope that you'll engage with us. We've already had over 500 people who've made the commitment to have that weekly conversation uh, with their spouse. So we're really, really thankful for that and hope that you will uh, participate in that as well. Now, hopefully you found your way to Matthew chapter seven, as we look into the text this morning, I want to ask you a question. Don't don't answer it out loud, but I want you just to think about it. If you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? Uh, If you were king for a day or queen for a day and had the power to change one thing in this world, what would you change? Now, some of you Uh, As you think about that question, you might answer with something really big and cosmic, you know, like uh, the the beauty pageant answer, you know, world peace. Uh, You know, if I had the ability, I would end all war, you know, and that's very virtuous. uh, Good for you. Or maybe you might say, I would eliminate uh, poverty or stop all crime, you know, big things like that, Uh, extend deer season year round, you know, things like that. And that's the big thing that you would change. But a lot of you, you might answer that question a little bit more personally. Maybe you would say, you know, if I, could, if I had the power to change one thing, I would change my spouse, maybe. Now, don't poke each other in the elbows here. Don't look at your spouse in this moment, but maybe that's what came to your mind. If I really had the ability to change one thing, you know, I might change my spouse. Or maybe it's uh, your kids. I would change this one thing about my kids, or maybe this one thing about my job. How many of us, though, would answer that question, if I could change one thing in the world, what would it be? How many of us would answer that, I would change me? Well, that's exactly what G.K. Chesterton said in response to a very famous newspaper question. A, a newspaper asked a question of its readers. What's wrong with the world? That was the question. What's wrong with the world? And and the great British writer and thinker of yesteryear, G.K. Chesterton, wrote a letter back to the newspaper and said, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What needs to be changed in the world? Me. What's wrong with the world? I am. That captures the heart of Matthew chapter 7. Verses 1 through 12. Let me just give you the context of Matthew chapter 7 as we come to uh, the, the, the really the closing part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I want to just kind of remind you of some things that Jesus has been saying, just kind of trace uh, uh, some of the, the statements he has made over the last couple of chapters. Jesus has just commanded his followers in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's quite the statement. Make it your priority. Jesus says, to seek the rule and the reign and the righteousness of God. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, Jesus says, when you pray, pray that God's kingdom, his rule and reign would come on earth as it is in heaven, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 5, In verses 13 through 16, Jesus has said to his followers, you know that you're to be salt and and light in this world, that you're to be a preserving influence on society. You're to be an illuminating force in our culture. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So these are very big things that Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen... God's plan for the world is for His kingdom to come, for His rule and reign and righteousness to prevail here on earth. And as you're hearing these statements, one of the natural questions to ask at this particular point is, well, how? How do we see the kingdom of God come on earth? How do we see you know, righteousness prevail throughout the land? And it would be very tempting at this particular point, very easy for us as followers of Jesus to say, that if we wanna see the righteousness of God prevail throughout the land, if we wanna see the kingdom of God come, if we wanna see his will being done on earth, it'd be very easy to begin to look around us, because we live in a very dark world, we live in a very wicked society, it'd be very easy to look around us and begin to look at all the evil that we see out there in the world and say, as we look at the the sin of the world, we look at the sin of the people around us to be able to to, to say that's really the problem. That if we really wanted to see the kingdom come, if we really wanted to see God's will be done, then we need to fix the sin out there. The real problem with what's going on, the real reason that we're not seeing righteousness throughout the land is the sin in the people out there. The real problem, you know, is Hollywood. Don't say amen yet, okay? Somebody in the early service are like, hey, man, it's like, hold up, hang on. There's another shoe that's going to drop. It's easy to say the real problem with this world is Hollywood. You know, the real problem is CNN. The real problem is the Democrats or, you know, the Republicans or whatever your political leaning happens to be, that if we could just fix what's wrong out there, then we would see the kingdom of God come on earth. Then we would see, you know, righteousness flourish throughout the earth. The real problem with the world is what's out there. We've been doing that, honestly, since the very beginning of the Bible. It's it's a natural part of the human heart to point at problems out there instead of realizing what's wrong right here. Think about in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebel against God. God comes and confronts them about their rebellion and they play the blame game. They start pointing fingers. You remember what Adam does? He says, God, it's this woman that you gave me. That's why I, I fell, right? So he's actually blaming the woman and he's blaming God. He's playing the blame game. He's pointing fingers. The real problem is not me, Adam says. The real problem is Eve. So God says, okay, well, let's talk with you, Eve. How's it, how's it going with you, Eve? And she says, oh, it's not my fault. It's, what was it? What'd she say? This is it's a serpent. Yeah, I'm not to blame. The real problem is not me and my choice to rebel. The real problem is the serpent. We have been playing the blame game ever since. The problem is not anything in my life. The problem is my neighbor. The problem is the Democrats. The problem is the Republicans. The problem is Fox News or CNN. The problem is out there. As the theologian Jimmy Buffett might have put it, some say there's a woman to blame. But I know it's my own fault. It's that kind of mindset that Jesus addresses in Matthew 7. Let's look what he says in verses 1 through 6. He says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. By, by the way, that's like the most memorized verse in the Bible, right? Even more so than John three sixteen. Everybody Christian or not, they know this verse. Don't judge so that you won't uh, be judged. And this is the common statement. They'll say, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Which is like the most terrifying statement that can, can come out of your mouth, right? Don't judge so that you won't be judged. Why? For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye, right? You're, you're preoccupied with other people's problems without realizing you have bigger problems in your own life. Or how can you say to your brother, let me fix what's wrong with you. Let me take the splinter out of your eye. Then look, there's a beam of wood coming out of your eye. Look at what Jesus calls that. He calls it hypocrisy. He says hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't cast what is holy toward dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, so what Jesus is addressing here is a kind of self righteous judgmentalism, right? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has talked about the subject of the true righteousness of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 6, he's talked about show righteousness, where you just display your righteousness for others to see. But now in Matthew chapter 7, he introduces a new subject, the subject of self-righteousness. It's not just that they're judging things. The problem is that they're judging the sin of others without recognizing the sin in their own heart. It's a self-righteous kind of judgmentalism. And Jesus says this kind of self-righteous judgmentalism ought not to be found among those who follow me. If you name the name of Christ, then you cannot stand in self-righteous judgmentalism towards others. So this is the problem that these verses are addressing. The problem of going around and pointing out the sins of others while ignoring the sin in ourselves. And Jesus gives us in these few verses three reasons why that kind of self-righteous judgmentalism is a problem. Number one, Jesus says, because that is unfair. Self-righteous judgmentalism is unfair. Notice what he says in verse two about standards and measures. He says, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. What he's saying there is that self-righteousness is measuring someone else's life against a standard that I don't measure my own life against. I'm measuring you against the standard of a cup while I'm measuring me against the standard of a teaspoon. I'm holding you to this standard while I hold myself to a completely different, lower kind of standard. Jesus says that's unfair. It's the idea that we say, you know, this is my standard for thee, but not for me. I'm going to hold you to this standard. I'm not willing to hold myself to this standard. And therefore, I'm going to judge you against a different kind of standard than I'm willing to judge myself against. Jesus says that's unfair. Secondly, he says it's hypocritical. Look down in verses 3 through 5. He says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your In your own eye, hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Jesus is saying that trying to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye while failing to notice that you have a log out of your eye. I mean, what a ridiculous comparison. Jesus is saying you're walking around and you're noticing the tiny little bitty faults of your neighbor. you you see this little problem in their life or this little sin in their life or this little failure in their life and you're eager to say, there's something wrong with you, let me fix you. While not realizing that there is a log coming out of your own eye. Jesus says that frankly is hypocritical. It's hypocritical. I've seen this as a parent. You know, when I hold my kids to a certain standard and how they use their words and I expect them for... For them not to have a potty mouth. To be nice and kind in their words. Thank you for whoever that was. Uh, I want them to use good speech. And then they say something that's maybe not so kind. And I say, you know, don't do that. Where do you learn that word? And they say, I heard you say it, Daddy. It's hypocrisy. I'm going to focus on the little speck in you without realizing I'm guilty of the very same thing, Jesus says, that's hypocritical. Paul addressed this kind of mindset in Romans chapter 1 and 2. You read the book of Romans in first chapter, Paul is describing the wickedness of the world, the Gentile world in particular. And Romans chapter 1 just reads like a laundry list of the world's sin. He's just listing out all of the ways that the Gentiles are wicked. He even says, you know, the wrath of God is being revealed against all of this unrighteousness. And you can almost imagine that first century Jewish listener to be sort of egging Paul on. Like, yeah, Paul, go get them. Aren't those Gentiles so wicked? And he just lists out all of their sin. But then Paul takes a little turn in Romans chapter two and verse one, and he addresses those Jewish listeners that might be tempted to judge the Gentiles for their sin. Look what he says in Romans chapter two and verse one. He says, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Let's say this next part together. Since you, the judge, do the same things. Can you imagine a judge in our legal system putting out high, uh, uh, high uh, penalties on those who speed in traffic, but he's speeding in traffic as well, we would say that's hypocritical. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, you, you, are, you are judging the Gentiles for their sin. But the truth is you're guilty of the very same kinds of things that you're judging them about. God forbid that people in the church are pointing fingers outside of the church, out there saying, oh my goodness, the real problem with the world is out there when inside the church house we're dealing with the same kinds of issues. Jesus says it's hypocrisy, self-righteous judgmentalism. And then the third thing he says, he says you ought to not judge because it's unproductive to cast your judgment out against a dark world, a sinful world, while having this hypocrisy in you. Is unproductive. That's why he says what he says in verse 6. Kind of a strange verse here. He says, Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. What's that talking about? Well, uh, dogs and pigs in the uh, Jewish mindset is a reference to unbelievers, right? The unbelieving world. He says, Don't throw what is holy at dogs or cast pearls before pigs. I think that's just a way of talking about judgmentalism. He's saying, don't cast your judgment toward an unbelieving world. What appears holy, you look holier than thou when you're judging others. It looks like you are casting out something holy towards the unbelieving world. Don't do that while also struggling with those very same things. Why? Because they, the the, the unbelieving world, they will trample that judgment underfoot. They will turn and they will tear you to pieces. Here's what I think Jesus is saying right there. He's saying if you are walking around, looking down your bony nose, pointing your bony finger at the sinful people out there, and they look inside the church and see that you grapple and deal with the same kind of sins that you're condemning them for, they will trample that judgment under their foot. They will turn towards you and they will tear you to pieces. Folks, let's just be honest. We're actually seeing that happen in the evangelical world today. Uh, every time that we see another leadership scandal in the evangelical church, and we've had many of those over the last few years, and then we point at the wickedness of Hollywood and the wickedness of CNN and the wickedness of the Democrats and all of those other things, and they look at the church and they say, see the same problems in the church that we're condemning outside of the church. The culture looks at that, they trample it under they, their foot, they turn and they, they are tearing us to pieces because we've lost any sense of moral credibility. We've lost any sense of moral high ground because we we are hypocritical. We're struggling with the same things that we're judging them about. And so Jesus says, do not judge, or you'll also be judged. You're going to be judged by the same standard and the same measurement that you're leveraging against other people. So here's the point that Jesus is making in these verses. It's very simple. That before we worry about what's wrong with the world, we should be concerned with what's wrong in us. Amen? But before we look and say the real problem is out there, we need to realize the real problem is in here. Before trying to fix the world's sin, Jesus is saying, first be concerned about your own sin. You know what's wrong with the world? The problem isn't first what needs to be fixed in you. It's what needs to be fixed in me. And I become very dangerous when I ignore the sin in me and look at that with a, a, a kind of a blind eye while turning a microscope toward the sin in you. Uh, I heard a, a story about a lady who, a single mom, had several young children, heard a noise in her house and uh, she got up in the middle of the night to see, you know, what, what the danger was. She thought there was an intruder in the house. And so she grabbed a shotgun out of her closet, it, probably a Texas woman, a good, strong Texas woman, go get the shotguns, going to take care of business. And she starts making her way room to room. She's checking each room to see if there, the, the danger is there. And she, she comes into the kitchen And she's got that shotgun laid out ready to confront the danger and the threat. And she flips on the light. She hears a little noise to the left. She swings that shotgun around to find her three-year-old daughter who'd gotten up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water. And in that moment, she actually was the most dangerous thing in the room. You see, she, she thought she was confronting a threat. She thought the real danger was something else, but in that moment, she was the threat. She was what was most dangerous. And folks, I would argue that that is what happens when we exercise self-righteous judgmentalism towards others. We think the threat and the danger is out there, but in that moment when we cast our judgment towards an unbelieving world, we are actually the most dangerous thing in the room. I wonder if we would be honest about our own sin today. It's easier to ignore our sin and to focus on my neighbor's sin. It's easier for me to think, you know, we do this, we hear a sermon and we're like, man, I wish so-and-so was here. They really need this. (laughs) I'll text them this sermon later without realizing maybe God had you pegged for that sermon. Isn't it easier? But the real problem, it's not you, it's me. It's not my neighbor, it's me. It's it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my y'all know this song? Okay, you know it? It's not my brother, it's not my sister, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Amen? So the real question, the real question we ought to be asking is how do I deal with what's wrong in me? How do I, how do I get the log out of my own eye. The real question is, what is the ugliness, not in, in my neighbor, what's the ugliness in my own life? And how can I get free of that? Another way of asking that question is just simply, how can I experience redemption? How can I get the ugliness out of me? How can I get the hypocrisy out of me? How can I get the sin out of me? How can I be made right? <clears throat> and you know, classically, like just in, in history, there have been three primary ways that we've tried to tackle that human problem. Uh, James S. Stewart, not Jimmy Stewart, but the other James Stewart, who taught uh, New Testament at the University of Edinburgh many years ago, he, he said, you know, if you go back to the very first century, you find that there were basically three approaches to dealing with the human problem. There was a Jewish approach, there was a Greek approach, and there was a Roman approach. And he says, nothing really has changed in 2,000 years. The Jewish approach to the human problem was religion. Basically, there's something wrong in me. The way that I deal with that is through religious effort. We see that in our day, don't we? P- people realize something's wrong. They realize something's messed up with their life. And so they think, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to start going to church. And they join a Bible study. They come to church. They read their Bible. They pray. And they start to exert moral, religious effort. And they think all of their religious trying will make them right. That's essentially the Jewish approach to the human problem. The Greeks approached it entirely different. The Greeks had a high value for the arts and learning and philosophy and logic. And essentially they thought, well, we can, we can deal with the human problem by sort of uh, uh, evolving as humans. The more we learn, uh, the more education we have, the, the more we can kind of attain higher ideas through philosophy. This is kind of the idea of like self-improvement. Right, and you see this in our world today as well. Uh, People who say, "Well, you know, the real problem, the human problem, could be addressed if we just, if uh, if we could have social reforms." Uh, if we could tackle crime, if we could tackle poverty, if we could make sure that every school, uh, every child went to school. You know, it's kind of this sort of self-improvement. If you go to Barnes & Noble, you will see one of the largest section of books is the self-improvement aisle. I can just better myself by learning some new technique or by uh, engaging some new program, and I will deal with what's messed up in in me that way. That would be the Greek approach. We see that today, don't we? People who just say, well... You know, I've had this drug problem, or I've had this addiction problem, or, or I've had this uh, brokenness in my life, and so I'm just going to start a, a, new, a new program of self-improvement. The Roman approach to dealing with the human problem. The Romans valued uh, sort of a disciplinarian life, a, a very strict moral code, uh, sort of the idea of if, if we have law and order, if we have moralism, sort of this stoic disciplined conduct then we will address what is really wrong with the human problem. We see that today as well. Moralism without God. People who just say, okay, something's broken, so I'm gonna try really hard to just be a good person, to be a better person, to sort of pick myself up by my own moral bootstraps. This would be moralism minus God. You see this, uh, by the way, in very popular speakers and thinkers out there today. Jordan Peterson is one of those guys in our day and time who is pushing, especially popular with young men, pushing a kind of moralism without God. Sort of have a strict moral code, have discipline in your life, and you will deal with what's really wrong with the human problem. Folks, I'm here to tell you that religion, religious earning, and self-improvement, sort of human evolving, and um, moral do-gooding, sort of the, the, the human effort, none of those things can really address what's wrong in us. The only thing that can deal with the human problem, is grace. It's God's grace and God's grace alone. When, when I realize that what's wrong with the world is not out there, it's in here, that what's really wrong with the world is me and what's inside of me, the only hope I have for redemption is the grace of God in my life. There is nothing I can do to earn that. There's nothing I can do to work for it. There's no uh, amount of religious effort or trying or moral do-goodism or social reform that can really fix what's wrong in me. So how do I deal with the ugly sin in me? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that. The text tells us. The text tells us how to deal with it. I want you to notice what Jesus says in verses 7 through 11. It's no accident that these verses follow, verses 1 through 6, okay? You know, you, that's brilliant insight that you have to go to seminary for, okay? Verses 7 through 11 come after, verses 1 through 6, right? So n- notice, notice what Jesus says in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Everyone who asks, let's say this together, receives. The one who seeks, what happens? finds the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, some people love to lift verses 7 and 8 out of context, and they love to apply it to every area of their life. You know, the junior high boy who finally wants the girlfriend, and he's like, you know, I'm naming it and I'm claiming it. Verse 7, I'm asking God for the girlfriend, and and whoever asks, receives, seeks, finds, and knocks, and the door will be opened. Or maybe you've uh, prayed this prayer, you know, you're hoping for that job promotion, and you're like, I'm naming it, I'm claiming it. If I ask, I'll receive that's not what this verse is about. This verse comes on the heels of verses one through six. Verses one through six is about the sin in us, the beam of wood that's lodged into our life. How do you get it out? Jesus tells you, ask the way to get the sin out of us is not through our religious effort or earning or our human evolving. It's not through any of those ty- types of attempts to deal with what's wrong in us. It's simply for, by asking for the grace of God. And Jesus is promising us here that if you, will, if you will ask God, He will show you mercy in your sin. If you've got something lodged into your life, Say, there's a beam of wood in my life. There's an element of hypocrisy that's living in me, and I can't get it out. I've tried. You're right, you can't get it out, but He can. And if you'll ask Him, He'll answer you. If you seek Him, you'll find Him. If you knock, He'll open the door. What a good word of hope today! This is grace. Grace is free, folks. Grace is not something you can earn. Consequently, it's also not something you can lose. It's a free gift of God. A gift is something that's there for the taking. God just offers this to you. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to earn it. Once you have it, there's nothing you can do to lose it. It's something you simply receive as a gift. You just ask God for this. Notice the language Jesus uses. He says, ask, seek, knock. Uh, In the Greek New Testament, this is a, a particular kind of command. It's a present, active imperative. Okay, present active imperative. Don't let your eyes glaze over. Think about this. It's a present tense. Continue to ask. It's not a one and done thing. You can continually ask because sin continually pops up in your life. To continually say, God, I need your help. I need your grace. It's active, not passive. That means this is something you must do, not something someone does for you. Your mama can't ask this for you. She can ask. But ultimately, you have to ask God to deal with it. It's not something your pastor can ask for you. It's not something your friend can ask for you. If you want the sin in you to be dealt with, you've got to ask God for it. And then it's an imperative. That means it's a command. There's no other other way to do this. There's not like one of multiple options. This is it. This is the only option. This is the only hope. There is one lifeboat, and this is it. Ask for the grace of God. But notice the wonderful promise here that Jesus gives us. If you ask, if you seek, if you knock, then the the giver of every good gift will do this for you. Another way of just simply saying this is that if you are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you, what, will be filled. If you ask God to remove the sin problem in you, he will. Notice the analogy that Jesus uses in verses 9 through 11. Who among you? If your son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Can you imagine that? A little Bubba wanders up to you, toddles over to you. Dad, can I have a biscuit? And you're like, here's a rock. Chew on that, kid. (laughs) Like, we would all look at that dad and say, you're evil, right? You're wicked. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. You know, surprise, ha, ha, ha. We'd say, that's a terrible dad. So look what Jesus says in verse 11. If you then, who are evil... If you know how to give good gifts to your children, right? All of us, even though we're we're pretty wicked, we even recognize that that kind of response to a kid is really messed up. Well, then how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You ought to just memorize that verse. How much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What, What Jesus is saying here is that God is like a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children. What better gift could God give than to answer the request to take the sin out of my life? If if you're struggling with something really ugly and hypocritical in your life, and you're like, I have tried everything else. Nothing works. How do I get this out? Jesus says, God is like a father who is eager to give good gifts to his children, so ask him to do it. Seek after him. He'll do it. Knock on his door. He'll open to you. God is a a good father who gives good gifts to his children, right? My, my kids are very smart. They've learned. They've gotten smarter over the years. They've, they've learned on Saturday mornings, uh, you know, they barge into my uh, room at 6 a.m. and they say, Daddy, can we watch cartoons? The answer is probably going to be no. But my youngest one learned a little trick uh, not too, too long ago. She, she learned to say, Daddy, will you come watch cartoons with me? And who could say no to that, right? (laughs) Who could say no to that? Why? Because I want good things for my kids. When they ask me things, I want to say yes. Do you realize that that's God's posture towards you? I think sometimes we have this image in our mind that when we sin, God is disgusted with us. That when we sin, God pulls back. Nothing could be further from the truth. When when you sin, God runs to you. It's why when you're in a messed up situation in your life, don't run from him. Run to him. He is eager. He's actually running towards you. He's a good father. He wants good gifts. He, He has an easy yes. It's not like God is holding good gifts back, you know, Saying, well, just show me it really matters to you. You know, try to make atonement for your own sin, and then maybe I'll give you something good. God is a father who's got an easy yes. He's eager to say, yes, you, you want me to come and take that sin out of your life? Yes. I'm eager to give you the good things. God withholds nothing good from us. Nothing. Which means if, you, if there's something you think is good that he's not giving you, it's, really, it's not for your good. God gives us every good gift like a good and generous father. So here's the great gospel hope of these verses. The great gospel hope. The good news for anyone caught in their sin, for anyone who's willing to be honest enough to say, yeah, pastor, what's really messed up in the world is not out there. It's in here. For you, if you come to grips with the fact that the major problem in our world isn't the speck in others, but the log of sin in us. If you come to grips with that reality, and then you wonder, is there any hope that what's wrong in me, what's broken in me can ever be fixed? Folks, that is the question that our world is asking. 10 out of 10 people out there understand there is something messed up with our world. Amen? Amen? And most honest people will realize there's something messed up with all of us. There's a real question, is there any hope to fix what's broken? And if that's you, if you've maybe just seen the real ugly in you and you just say, is there any hope that what's broken in me can ever be fixed? The good news of this text is that because of the work of the one who is saying these things, the one who is going to march to a cross and take your sin and my sin on himself on the cross and die for it and be buried and bury our sin with him and then be raised victoriously from the grave because of his work. He can say to you, ask, seek, knock. And God is a good father who will say yes He will help you. He will save you. He will rescue you. He will give good gifts to his children. And God is both willing and able and eager to answer yes, I can rescue. Have you ever asked him to do that? If not, why not ask him today? He'll freely give. Maybe, maybe the log in your eye is self-righteousness. Maybe the log is a judgmental spirit. Maybe the log is a life of hypocrisy. Maybe the log is a sin so dark that you feel you're too broken to ever be put back together. Just hear this word. God loves you, and he cares for you. And there's nothing so big he can't remove it and then heal. Amen? And, by the way, if you have experienced that kind of grace, if you've received that kind of mercy from God, you know what we're called to do? Extend that mercy to others. If you've really experienced the grace of God in your own life, then how could we ever self-righteously judge someone else? If you really realize how dark my sin is and how great God's grace is, is to me in my sin, then far be it from me to point my bony finger at you. That's why Jesus says the last thing he says in verse 12, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying is this, if you want great grace and great mercy, you've got to be willing to extend it to the people around you. If you've understood the grace of God in the midst of your sin, those who have experienced grace, extend grace. Amen? And that's our call as followers of Jesus, to walk around this world not with self-righteous judgmentalism, but to walk around as recipients of undeserved grace, lavishing that grace toward the people around us. Amen? Let me close with this. I just want to say a word to those of you who are in the house today who maybe have never experienced that grace yourself. If you have never asked God to remove the sin out of your life, to fix what's broken in you, I just want you to know that God really cares for you. God is really drawn to you and is eager to help you. Um, Many of you know Chris Thornton. Chris is one of our great deacons uh, here at Moberly. He's also uh, my eye doctor. And I've asked him, I, because I'm a preacher, I'm always just curious about what people do, especially the weird parts of their job. So I've asked Chris before, like, hey, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen caught in somebody's eye? You know, he tells me all these gory stories. And then I say, okay, well, how do you get it out? You know, give me the details. I, that's a terrible question to ask. I just don't recommend that at all. But he can get it out. If you get something caught in your eye, you go to Chris, he'll get it out for you. Now, it's very uncomfortable to hear what that looks like. He's like, oh, yeah, no problem. I just, you know, whoop, just squeak, get it out. And I'm like, ooh, ooh, <laughs> you know, that sounds terrible. If you come to get something stuck in your eye and you need an eye doctor to get it out, that is not a comfortable process to even think about. Amen? Can I get a witness to that? That's not a comfortable process for them to dig stuff out of your eyeball. Ooh. But if I get something stuck in my eye and I come to Chris and Chris comes to me with that little tool, you know, and I'm like... Hey, back, step off, you know, back, back up. Because he's a good doctor and because he's a good friend, he is going to do in my life what is uncomfortable. Something maybe in that moment I'm like, I'm having regrets about. No, I, it's going to be fine. I'll just live with it, you know? He's like, no, I love you too much. I love you too much to let that be lodged in your eye. I'm going to make you better. I'm going to make you Whole. But it's going to be a little uncomfortable for a second. Now, see, that's a sign of a good doctor. Do you, do you understand that Jesus is called the great physician? And he just loves us so much that even when we say, Jesus, it's too ugly. No, no, we'll just live with this thing lodged in us. Jesus is like, I love you too much. I love you too much. It's not comfortable. It's not always easy. But come to me. I'll make you better. I'll make you whole. I'll take the ugly thing out. I'll heal. And Jesus can do that for you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads all around this room. If you're here today and you've never asked Jesus for that, and maybe there has been something dark and ugly that's lodged itself into your life, I want you to know that forgiveness and grace is as near as As you just simply asking for it. You can ask God for forgiveness and grace right now. If you've never done that, you could just pray something like this right now God, I know I'm messed up. I know I'm broken and sinful. And I need your help. God, would you remove the sin out of my life? Would you heal the wound and the brokenness? Would you make me new? I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead. And I want you to be the center of my life now. Amen. If you prayed something like that, the Bible says those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you ask, you'll receive. Which means if you asked him for grace and forgiveness, he gave it to you. Amen. We'd love to know about that love to be able to help you to live with Jesus at the center of your life. And so in a moment, we're going to close our service. Here at the front, there will be a couple of prayer partners. If you'd like to just come down and say, hey, I I prayed that prayer with the pastor. They'll celebrate with you. They'll pray for you. But they'll also give you some help to know how to live with Jesus at the center. We'll have pastors out in the lobby as well. If you're watching online, you can text the word NEXT to 57686. Someone will be in touch with you. But we want to be able to help you to make Jesus the center of your life. I'm going to invite you as you go from this place to remember that if you've experienced God's grace, you are called to extend God's grace to others. Amen. Let's be a people of grace in this community by God's help for God's glory.